We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 7. And as always, when time allots, we are going to start with the proverb of the day. Um, my friends who in the fellowship who have ADHD and ADD tell me they love this. I can go do a little bit of the Proverbs and jump to Corinthians and it changes the channel for them. So, you know, let's get into the Proverbs 11. And you guys are probably saying, what got into him this morning? Okay, Proverbs 11, starting with verse 7. It says, When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of the unjust perishes. Two points here. The wicked's only hopes and expectations are connected to this present world. And the disciple John tells us that this world is passing away and the lust of it. So when this world passes away, the wicked have nothing except to face judgment. And if they're wicked, damnation. It's not a real pretty picture. It's a bleak picture. But, you know, and this is cool because um, the Proverbs have different ways of going through. Uh, there's progressive parallelism. There's synonymous parallelism. We're in the antithetic parallelism. Basically, you've got these two major contrasts, the righteous and the unrighteous, good and bad, you know, uh, light and darkness. So that's what we're in at this point of the Proverbs. Uh, verse 8, it says, The righteous is delivered from trouble, and it comes to the wicked instead. Uh, you saw this in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel. Everything that was meant to harm God's people eventually went to the bad guys, right? Uh, you saw this in Judges with Abimelech. Um, he got a, a stone dropped on his head from a tower, uh, and those are the people he was trying to kill, a very cruel death. So it's neat. You see it in the Old Testament stories, but also eventually all the righteous will be delivered, and bad fortune will go to the wicked in the form of judgment. Verse 9, the hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. The hypocrite destroys, maybe with gossip, with lies, with character assassination. And the worst kind of hypocrite is the one that says, don't look at the skeletons in my closet, and starts to point the finger at everybody else, but don't let anybody in their closet. That's why they're the hypocrite, because they should remove the plank out of their eye first before looking at the speck in your eye, you see. But through knowledge, of course, of the Lord's ways, the righteous are eventually delivered by him. Verse 10, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is shouting. Uh, it's a good thing when the righteous succeed, and especially in leadership. We rejoice when we have a good leader somewhere in the government. It's, it's not often seen, unfortunately. But even the wicked, at their death, there's strife, there's shouting. There's controversy, right? Uh, and you even see this in some of these uh, puppet governments. You know, there's constant upheavals and coups and, and, and treachery and, you know, f flipping of the government. It's, it's just crazy. Now, in some of these proverbs, because the Hebrew is uh, mostly understandable, you know, the large majority of it, but there's some nuances to the language that in another translation it says, when the righteous uh, perish, there is shouts of joy. Either way, people are glad that the wicked person is gone and the righteous are in power. Verse 11, by the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. Society may not even realize that the prayers and the blessings of the righteous, James 5 tells us, you know, the effective fervent prayers of the righteous avails much. And even in our society, before 
we were so, we were like a city on a hill. It was odd. Every other country in Asia, in Europe, things were getting blown up all the time. And it still happens. And in the United States, nothing was happening. And then 9-11-2001, that was when our eyes got opened to the destruction, uh, the way people are in society. But I wonder if, if the prayers of the contingent of, of righteous people praying for centuries kind of kept us safe for a long time. And the tide is kind of turning where less and less Americans are consider themselves, you know, born again Christians or really have that deep faith and that deep prayer. You know, just the, just the thought there. But the mouth of the wicked overthrows. A lot of damage can be done by one mouth and it can go downhill very quickly. In a sense, the pen is mightier than the sword. Somebody, and, and you know what I thought about the mouth of the wicked destroys? I even think of the media. When the media has somebody that they like, they may not be a person of good character. They'll, they'll exalt that person until they put them in a powerful position. If there's someone the media doesn't like, maybe it's a conservative Christian with uh, values and, and Jesus, they'll make them look like a backwoods, you know, uh, southern. It's just a way to destroy the character of someone that they don't agree with. And it's on TV, it must be right. That's the attitude of a lot of Americans. Well, I saw it on the news, it must be right. <laughs> Guys, need to turn off that the idiot box and, and read some books or something. But <laughs> So this is where we're at, right? Now, we're going to go into 1 Corinthians 7. The last time we saw Paul's, uh, the Apostle Paul's command to flee sexual immorality. And today, we're going to see some good principles for married life and really some pointers for singles to consider if they're considering getting married. So we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians 7. This might shock you, <laughs> not in the way that you think by reading it, but we can read something on the surface, and then when we really study and get deeper into it, there's more to it than just what the guy might look at this and say, and the girl might look at this and say. There's really, and I'm going to get into that oneness, all right, um, that he's trying to convey here. So 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. It says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Before I go on, what's fascinating here is in that society 2,000 years ago, uh, women were still looked at in many circles, in many cultures, in many religions as second-class citizens. See, you hear the hype about how Christianity is... It brings women back to those times. No, it doesn't. If they would just read their Bibles, they would see the opposite. The Apostle Paul is giving the woman authority as well as the man. The Apostle Paul is saying the woman should have her due affection as well as the man. You see how Paul divides this right... I, bet you know, I don't know if anybody noticed that. But he divides it right down the center and says the wife is just as important as the man is. That's the first thing we see here. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, 
It is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I had my crew turn up the air conditioners real high so I don't start to sweat while I'm up here teaching this. I have to put some levity into this. Uh, now, concerning the things which you wrote to me, the Apostle Paul says, and we've spoken about this, the Apostle Paul was answering a multitude of questions that he was asked by the Corinthian believers. They had all these questions. They had a society that was so decadent and so pagan that, you know, a lot of times they didn't know which way was up and which way was down, and they really needed God's word and his counsel to set them in the right direction in this society. Now, before we continue, I'm going to do a little speculation. Now, this is speculation. I'm not saying that you're going to find this in the scripture. But this is what you will find in the scripture. The Apostle Paul says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrew, of the tribe of, I believe, Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? So the Apostle Paul was a respected religious leader. He was a Pharisee. He studied under Gamaliel, who was another great religious teacher. Even secularists revere him. So the Apostle Paul went to the, probably a great university uh, where he was from. And uh, uh, if he was a Pharisee, and he was on the Sanhedrin, which was a ruling body, he would have to be most likely married. This was a religious appointment as well as a political appointment. No doubt they found a nice Jewish girl who came from a good family to put with Paul and get them married because, you know, you were expected to be married and have children. Again, this is speculation. So the question is, if the Apostle Paul did have a wife, where is she now? It's possible she passed away, or it's possible that she left when he converted to Christianity. He was so, he was fire-breathing mad to destroy the Christians. Now you see him in one way, and then all of a sudden, sometime later, he's going in the other direction. He's hanging out with the Christians and, and escaping from those who are persecuting the Christians. So if, if he had a wife, uh, she might have left him because she might have thought he was going crazy. But if the Apostle Paul was married, he would certainly have a dual perspective. He would see things as a single man or a married man. Single man, married man, now a single man again. So I'll just leave you with that. Verse 1 and 2, he said, It's good for a man not to touch a woman or remain single. Why? Because a man could do much more of the Lord's will, and we'll see that. But if a man or a woman has a desire for the opposite sex, they should get married, which is the only safe place for sex, the Bible teaches us. Verses 3 and 4. He says, Let each spouse give the due affection to the other, and let each have authority over the other's body. Now, I would say this in many respects. Of course, there's a sexuality component, but this isn't a treatise on sexuality. All right, as we're going to see, it, it goes deeper than that in many respects. The big picture is to treat your spouse with the same care that you would want, that you meet the needs of your spouse and your spouse's body as you meet the needs of your body. I'm going to read Ephesians 5, just two verses, 28 and 29. It says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. I've heard people say, oh, I hate myself. Listen, if you're feeding yourself every day, and you're taking a shower, and you're going to the doctor when you're sick, you don't hate yourself. Sometimes that's a ploy for attention. I might be a little crusty today, so forgive me uh, if I am. But... This is serious because this, is, this shows the oneness between the wife and the husband 
and how we're supposed to be one flesh. So the husband, if a husband loves his wife, it shows that he loves his own body. Because if a husband doesn't neglect his body, then he shouldn't neglect his wife. You see? That's okay. Both sides are going to get it today. A lot of giggles today. I don't know. <laughs> affection is mentioned. Very important. Even if you watch the nature shows, the wild animals show affection to each other. So if the wild animals can show affection to each other and just grooming and licking and kissing, you know what? We should be able to show affection to each other, being that we're higher beings and we're spiritual beings. You know, think about the times that if you're married when you were dating, the holding hands, the talking, the taking an interest in others' hobbies, right? When I met my wife, when she wasn't my wife, she liked cats. And I never owned cats. I was a single guy. So I'm like, you know, I want to impress her. I went out on, on a call, and there was these two kittens that were climbing up and down me. So they said, do you want them? I said, yeah, I took them home. I worked shift work. Needless to say, I didn't get a whole lot of sleep. They would climb on my head, and I'm like, how do people have kittens? This would drive me crazy. But love makes you do crazy things, doesn't it? Right? It really does. And I would say this, don't stop doing it. Don't stop doing it, right? Look at some of the older couples, some of the more mature couples, you know, some of the couples that have been together for decades, and take a lesson from them. When we have Wednesday night Bible study, if I see Mike without Gene, I shake his hand and say, Mike, how you doing? How's your wife? Because wherever Mike goes, Gene goes. George and Wuzzy, I don't think they've ever come uh, alone. They always come together, you see? Do things together as a couple. Don't stop. The dating shouldn't stop. Now, sexual relationships are obviously part of the equation here. And I would just look at this as a formula. Affection, communication, and love. Now, I would say if you take those three together, affection, communication, and love. They're just as important outside the bedroom as they are important inside the bedroom, okay? Think about that for a minute. We should treat each other the same way inside the bedroom and outside the bedroom. It's important. The ideal situation is that both spouses are falling over each other in the desire to please the other. It's a vortex of selflessness. And this may be the section where I turn red. And I purposely got a tan, not because I'm vain, but because I knew I was going to teach this. <laughs> and I vowed that the last book in the Bible I will ever teach is the Song of Solomon. <laughs> and I'm hoping that we get raptured before that. <laughs> but Pastor Anthony and I have given this some thought, and we've decided to nominate Dave to teach that book. <laughs> He's blushing already. <laughs> All right, let's get back to the scripture. Three. Sexual relationships and intimacy discussed in these last two chapters. But as usual, the Bible tells us that there's something much deeper spiritually, which is often the case. You see, this one flesh concept is husband, wife, wife, husband, spouse, spouse. When I hurt, or when you hurt, I hurt. When you feel sad, I feel sad. When I feel good, I want you to feel good. You see, it's that I'm convinced absolutely convinced that we have to understand the full ramifications of the one flesh concept between a man and his wife before we can understand anything else that's written in scripture. Now, I want to say this. There are those today that are maybe here or listening on the radio that this might be become a little bit painful. Uh, maybe you have a spouse who's not a believer, and I want you to know that I pray for you. 
I really do, because that's got to be very hard, all right? And um, continue to pray for that spouse, and we're going to cover that next Sunday. I'm going to read another scripture, 1 Peter 3, 7, says this. Peter, speaking to men, says, Likewise, you husbands, dwell, live with them, live with your wives with understanding. Now, it's not saying, try to understand your wife. He's giving a command, guys, live with your wives with understanding, understand them. Even if it's a lifelong pursuit, try to understand your wife. It's a command. Giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. And I've often said this, married men, if we're praying about something for a while and it's just not happening, here's a stumbling block, here's a speed bump to our prayers if we're not treating our wives the way we're supposed to treat them. My wife and I have a lot of property and we do a lot of work. We have a vegetable garden, we have all this stuff that we do. We're always digging and moving rocks and stuff and you know, get in the house and she's like, oh, can you rub my feet? So I'm rubbing her feet. She goes, can you rub my neck? And I'm rubbing her neck. And I said, you know, I have muscles too. Why am I the one who's always doing the, ru the rubbing? Her answer was awesome. She goes, because I'm the weaker vessel. Now, I usually have a comeback, but that just, all right, you got me on that one, babe. I just smiled. One day, I was watching my wife cook a meal years into our marriage, and she's always looking at recipes and, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I said to her, I'm just watching her. I'm like, boy, you must really love to cook. She goes, no, not really. But she does it because she's concerned about my body. She's concerned about my health. You know, when I go to work, she doesn't want me to stop at Dunkin' Donuts and eat junk. She wants to bring me my food up there. But... You know, and listen, I'm not trying to paint a perfectly rosy picture of my marriage. There is no perfect marriage. Every married couple argue. They, they argue about stupid things. And I knew this week, something told me, it's probably the Holy Spirit that said, you're teaching on marriage on Sunday, Satan's going to attack you this week. I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm praying and stuff. But then, you know, just right before the, the weekend started, we, we had an argument about something so stupid looking back. And I'm like, you know what, Lord, you told me you told me that this was going to happen. Just Satan's way to try to get me off base and, you know, make me feel like a hypocrite so I can't come up here and do this. But you know what? Marriages work, folks. And husbands, pay attention to your wives. It's very important. And not just when you're looking for that due affection rendered to you all the time. Attention and affection is very important to wives and they equate it with love. Now, I'm just going to kind of look at the behaviorism of I don't know, maybe the way we're wired, but men, right? You look at Alexander the Great or any of the great conquerors. You know, they, they were, they were in, he was in Greece. He wasn't satisfied with Greece. He wanted to take over the world. And it, I think it, nine, ten years, he took over most of the known world at the time. But, you know, these conquerors, these men, they like to conquer. They take over and they, they conquer all these places. And then when it's peacetime, they don't know how to run the country. They kind of like things are there's problematic and they end up having the folks from that country kind of be vassals of them, right? Because they don't know what to do with it. And sometimes they see men the same way. You know, we have this conquering spirit. We pursue the one that we love. You know, we buy them flowers. We uh, do all this stuff. We open the doors. We open the car doors. And then five years into the marriage, the husband's in the car with the kids and he's backing out of the driveway and the wife's running to catch up to the car to jump into the door, you know, because he's not opened the door for her. He's like, come on, baby, let's go. We got to get out of here. But, you know, men, we need to not stop pursuing our wives. And I know I'm going to try to ignore all the elbows that I'm going to see today. So, <laughs> you know, 
I'll pass by the, 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 you know, the sink. We don't have a dishwasher per se. And it's kind of hard for me, if I know my wife is busy, to just look at those dishes and say, well, it's her job. And I've actually gotten very good at doing the dishes to the point that I don't want her to do them because she leaves too much soap on the glasses. <laughs> when I take a drink of water, I feel like I'm blowing bubbles. <laughs> I got it, baby. I love you. You know, <laughs> go sit down and relax for a few minutes. <laughs> but, okay. And we can look at this from both an uh, angles. You know, I, I, I'm giving the, the, the husbands a lot of grief. It goes both way, ladies. I was counseling a couple and, uh, you know, younger couple, and the wife says, I want a divorce. No uh, physical abuse or anything that you could really point to, adultery from the scripture. And she wanted out of the marriage. And I was familiar with this couple. Uh, and she said, I've been suffering for years. I said, I've watched your marriage. I said, you've been suffering for years, you know, but you wanted a new car, he got you a new car, he worked extra. You wanted an addition on the house, he worked extra to get that addition. You wanted the, another room done, and I, every time I come in, I see him on his hands and knees doing something. I said, the guy works so much overtime, you say that he falls asleep on the couch, but he's so exhausted, he can't make it up the stairs to the bedroom. I said, if you were suffering so much, why did you take so much from that man? Maybe instead of being selfish, you should have said to him, husband, I don't need all that stuff. I need you here at home with me. Our marriage needs work. Don't work. I don't want anything else. I just want your time. Am I right or am I wrong? Right? Husbands, wives, we're both sinners. We both need to look at our own hearts and see where we've fallen short in the marriage, or even if we have a good marriage, to see how we could keep it good. It's like an investment. The more you put into it, you collect interest on that investment. Well, marriage is the same way. And I respect the older couples, I respect the older couples in this fellowship. They've been through the 60s. They've been through World War II. They've been through hard times. And they're still solid. They still love each other. And they hold each other's hands and they stroke each other. And you know, guys, especially us younger folks, we need to look at that and see how we can learn from that. It's very important. Life is stressful. We can either work together synergistically or we can be at each other's throat to make each other miserable. Right? This is good marriage counseling from God's word for three groups of people. Number one, married people. How do we do a better job? How do we make our marriage grow? Which all of us can do that. Two, those of us who are considering marriage. Wow, this is pretty serious stuff. This is what it's all about. Right? And three, maybe some of us that got divorced and we could look at it retrospectively and say, gee, where did things go wrong? Not to beat yourself up. Listen, you've repented of that. God forgives you. You shouldn't be walking in guilt. But just maybe a form of closure in a sense, right? Verse 5 and 6. Paul addresses an issue here about rendering due affection. And not to de deprive each other of those affections, except if you're fasting from it, where you both agree, and uh, you come together so that the devil doesn't tempt you. Now, you have to understand the background here. The Gnostics were teaching, and I've covered this a little bit, that all matter is evil, so our bodies are evil. Now, two different ways you can go with that philosophy. Number one, with the Gnostics. The body is evil. It's, it's just a wicked piece of machinery. So, you know what? Be lascivious. You know, do whatever feels good. Gratify yourself. That was the one camp, right? The other camp was completely opposite with the same thought. The body is evil, so sexuality is evil, so be an ascetic. 
you know, don't ever have, don't do anything that gratifies you physically because it's always wrong. So no doubt this was a, a, a postulation to Paul where he had to address it, but they're both wrong. Paul is saying, no, if you're married, you shouldn't be depriving each other except for a mutual time of fasting. Now, I'm just gonna throw this in here because I've been asked this question. Paul addresses the affection and we, we know that there's a sexuality component to it. People have asked, well, what, where does birth control fit in? Are we allowed to do that? And I would say this, as long as it's preconception, then I, I don't see an issue with it. You know, we don't really kind of look at that and, and get into people's lives and say, you shouldn't be doing that. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a decision between a husband uh, and their wife and, um, and that's pretty much where it stays. Verse five, he says, don't allow Satan to tempt. Lack of intimacy can, uh, and affection can invite temptation from outside sources. You ever look at the, um, the uh, mindsets or the uh, studies on why husbands and why wives cheat? They're different, but they're same. You see, both the husband and the wife are looking for maybe attention that they feel they're not getting at home. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just looking at the behaviorism of it. Um, a wife may say, my husband, he never talks to me. It's like talking to a wall. He never says anything to me. He doesn't listen to me. You know, I feel so lonely. So the wife may look for it in other places. A husband, uh, the, the proverbial, it's always the secretary's fault. You know, the guy runs her off with the secretary. Why? Because the secretary maybe treats him like with respect because she's the secretary. That's her job. And, uh, you know, he feels like he's being treated like a man. So he runs off with the secretary. Again, it's sinful, but look at the behavioralism of it. There was a song uh, when I was growing up, which was really corny. How many people remember the Pina Colada song? If you like Pina Coladas. This was a song about a couple that it just wasn't happening anymore. They were falling out of love, so to speak. And she puts, takes out a personal ad, and he wants to take out, and she doesn't, he doesn't know that she is, and he takes out one or answers it thinking that she doesn't know. And they say, well, let's meet at this place. You know, do you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain and all this kind of stuff? So they meet together, they see it's each other and they kind of laugh and you know, it revitalizes their relationship. It's a stupid song, but, and don't make a theology out of it. <laughs> but the point is that nobody really falls out of love. We just stop talking. We stop communicating. We stop trying to please each other. And we think that a marriage runs on autopilot. Maybe planes do that, 747s, but marriages don't, you know? There needs to be effort put into that relationship. Verse six, whew, I, I got through the, the hard part, right? <laughs> the rest is just downhill at this point. Verse six, the apostle Paul says uh, in verse six, verse 10, verse 12, sometimes he'll say, but this I say, sometimes he'll say, but the Lord says, when Paul gave instruction or direction to anybody needing his instruction or direction, he handled it like this. Number one, if it was in God's word or Christ's teaching, right? The apostle Paul, since it was already covered, just reiterated that. But the Lord said this when he was here. When the Lord appeared to me, you know, he spoke to me and he talked to me. And when he was with the disciples, this is what he said. Right? That's number one. Two, if God's word didn't specifically address it or it was vague, Paul extrapolated. To find an unknown, he took the knowns. That's just a scientific term. He took what he could find out of the scripture and to the best of his ability with prayer and uh, seeking the Holy Spirit, he would give his counsel. The third point, 
If neither, Paul prayed and relied on the Holy Spirit for insight. That's a good formula for us. See, men, preachers, pastors get into big problems when what they do is they want to be on the cutting edge. You know, it's 2,000 years later. You know, I need to grow my flock. How do I do that? And some of them do this. You know, they hire these agencies. How can I get my church to grow? They want to be avant-garde. They want to be on the cutting edge. They want to shock people. Ooh, check out this church. You know, it's really exciting. But that's only, hey, look at me. That's just what, what gets us in trouble. What we need to do is, and I don't mind being boring. I'll stick with the Word of God. And I'm not going to venture anywhere out from what the Word of God says. And Paul didn't do that either. So it's important to understand. And he speaks about a concession versus a command. He believed that, he didn't believe that uh, marriage was wrong. But he was... Uh, he had an urgency in his life uh, about the Lord. So he gave a concession, not a command, basically about being like him, being single, and carrying on the Lord's work. But it was a, a concession, not a command. Paul didn't want to give strict domination over our lives to the point that we couldn't make our own decisions. And I would just say this before we move on to the next section. Spouses, young people sitting here, this is for you or people who aren't married yet, don't look to Hollywood to find the perfect mate, to find romance. Well, what is my marriage supposed to be? Oh, I saw this wonderful movie. It was such a love story. I wish my husband did that. I wish my wife did that, right? Um, they're, they're not real. And the weird thing about Hollywood is they have these, and I've seen the movies. Oh, they're just such a love story, and it couldn't be any better in the background and the beach and all this kind of stuff. But you know, those actors and actresses, in their real lives, they can't keep a relationship together. They brag about having several therapists. Their lives are a mess. They don't know Jesus. So in the silver screen, it's, it's awesome. You know, Jennifer Aniston, uh, this guy, uh, Ben Affleck, wow, must be great to be with them. But in their personal lives, problem after problem after problem. I actually have a friend who works with uh, actors and actresses, and he tells me, Joe, they lead a double life. Some of these marriages are arranged. You should see the things that I see, right? So don't look to Hollywood. And I'd say this, I don't think I need to say this, but, and you know, we go off on the website and for CDs. Anybody looking at pornography, number one, that's humiliating to your wife. And uh, number, number two, these women, they get paid to look like that. And then even as good as they look, they're airbrushed on top of that. So if you think that your wife can compete with that, Forget about it, and you shouldn't be looking at it, and it shouldn't be brought to the marriage. Like I said, I don't think I need to say that, but um, it's unrealistic, all right? It's unrealistic. Verses 7 through 9. He says, I wish all men were like me, or, but, you know, each, but each has his own gift, um, one manner in this manner and one in that manner. And this is where we get the term, the gift of singleness. The Apostle Paul had the gift of singleness. He had the ability to serve God without the distraction of having a mate. Again, not that it's wrong, but this was the urgency that he sensed in his life. Paul saw heavenly visions and was so transfixed on what the Lord had for him that to do anything else but further the kingdom of heaven, he wasn't going to do that. And he wasn't putting down marriage or even annulling Genesis, be fruitful and multiply, right? And my question is this, whether we're single or married, and we're going to see this further on in the scripture, the single person just is concerned about the Lord, the single Christian. But the married Christian is concerned about the Lord, but also the needs of their spouse. And we see that right here. So it's a choice that we make. But my question is, 
Do we have the same urgency? I don't care what position you're in. Are you single? Are you married? Are you estranged? Whatever the, the case may be. Do you have the same urgency that the Apostle Paul had? Right? Jesus said even in his day that the laborers were few and the harvest was ripe for harvest. Uh, but there was not enough laborers to do the job. Is the Lord's will part of our five-year plan? What is our five-year plan? Who's getting ready to retire? Who's getting ready to get married? Who's getting ready to raise a family? Is the Lord part of our five-year plan? I don't care what position that you're in. Is he part of our summer plan? <laughs> Have we kind of left him behind, right? Or to, to get a whole bunch of memories. Um, is he part of our plan today? You know, did we talk to him this morning? Even in the ride in the car, Lord, things were a little hectic, but, you know, I pray that you bless this day and I'm thankful for what you've given me. And you know, is he part of our lives? Did we say good morning to him? That's an important question. The last verse, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. I don't think I need to explain that one. Uh, you don't have the gift of singleness if you have a strong desire for the opposite sex. And then I would heed Paul's words. In closing, I would just say a few things. Number one, we need to, make a, we need to commit to our God. That's number one. We need to commit to our God. If we're married, we need to commit to our marriage. We need to commit to our church. And we need to commit to our personal walk with the Lord. Those are things that we need to commit to as believers. Doing the things that we want to do is great. I like to have fun. Nobody laughs, I think, more than I do. Uh, I like being with people. But the Lord, it's not an either and or thing. The Lord is always included in what I do in my life. The second thing is, under these principles for married, uh, for marrieds, husbands, love your wives. Treat your wives as good, and I would say better, than your own bodies. Be concerned about your wife. Wives, respect your husbands. You married him. <laughs> Fulfill your obligations. And three, do something together. I would say this. Do something physical, do something intellectual, and do something spiritual. You'd be surprised how your marriage will blossom. I see George and Wuzzy with the bookstore. I see um, Wayne and Ann with the kids in the back. I see Bill and Sue with the kids in the back. I see so many couples that do things together, serve the Lord. And I would say the spiritual thing is the most important one. You know, when my wife and I met each other, we were serving in, a, in Broken Lowe's in the food ministry. Uh, and it was so cool because we got to know each other and how we serve the Lord through serving the Lord. So I would say, even if you, know, you have a good marriage, do something together. Dan and Jen, okay, they go to Trenton and serve together in the homeless outreach. That is awesome. My wife and I, she'll put Bible uh, studies together for the women, and she'll ask me questions once in a while, and sometimes I'll bounce things off of her. You know, we're in ministry together. You'd be surprised how that can strengthen your marriage. Four, be friends some of the older, more mature couples in the fellowship or maybe some that you know that have been married for a long time and have good marriages and ask them, what's your secret? Don't be ashamed. I'm sure they'd be more than happy to tell you. What's your secret? It's just a lot to this, folks. And it really is a hard issue. And I have to say this. There are some, and you know, my wife and I have done our share of marital counseling. There are some that say, we want a marriage like yours. But the question is, do you? Because the husband and wife will come up, and my wife and I are, 
We don't tell people what they want to hear. We tell them what they need to do to strengthen their marriage. Some people walk off in a huff and they're offended. Do you really want your marriage to be, to be better? Well, he's not doing this. Well, she's not doing that. Oh, as soon as you see that, you know it's going to be problems. Well, stop focusing on him. Stop focusing on her. All right. On the count of three, you both do it at the same time. One, two, three, go. You know? Do you want your marriage to be better? Open up your heart and ask the Lord to humble you to see where you can receive the counsel that you need to receive to make the marriage better. And five, singles. Pay attention to what you heard today. When choosing a spouse, make sure your foundation is in the scripture. I know it's hard, but try to look past the good looks and the fuzzy feelings you get inside and look at the foundation. Where is the foundation? And I've heard people in, in, in and it's like becoming a marriage dissertation today, but I've heard some after being married a few years, I didn't see the signs. I was too focused on other things. Well, now you made the commitment and you need to work through that commitment. Maybe in a few weeks, some of you may come back, me and, back to me and thank me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word has, has just a... a